5: Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything.
6: This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between, including your story. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. They're some of our favorites. And today we have Faith bringing us the story of Hedy Lamarr. Take it away, Faith.
3: Famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr was born in Austria in 1914. By the mid-1940s, she became the world's first superstar in Hollywood. She was known for her striking beauty and her, at times, scandalous movie appearances. Pulitzer Prize winner Richard Rhodes wrote a book titled Hedy's Folly The Life and Breakthrough Inventions of Hedy Lamar, The Most Beautiful Woman in the World This book helps unpack the life of a woman that perhaps we thought we knew Here is Richard Rhodes
2: When she walked into a room she actually stopped conversations People would be startled by her appearance The sad tragedy of her life in a way, though, was that she was also highly intelligent. And since she was so strikingly beautiful, uh, hardly anyone ever noticed her intelligence. It wasn't uh, factored into the kind of roles she was given in movies, where she usually played some conventionally beautiful woman falling in and out of love with a handsome leading man. I mean, the tragedy of this woman was that she was, as she pointed out, more than a pretty face. She liked to say sarcastically, I can tell you how to be glamorous. All you have to do is stand still and look stupid. Uh, (laughs) Growing up in Vienna, her parents were wealthy. Her father was a Jewish banker and an and an athlete. Uh, her mother was had trained as a concert pianist, and she grew up in what was a really multicultural and multi-religious uh, community in Vienna, just around the time and after the time of the First World War. So. A very cultured world, Vienna was, was just one of the centers of culture in those days, and particularly of theater. And she fell in love with theater. Uh, she was a good actress. She was, a, she was smart and she learned to play roles, and much more than the roles she later would play in American films ever tested her for. She also became kind of the catch of the day in, in Austria, exactly because of her beauty on the one hand and her fame on the other. And the second richest man in Austria decided he wanted her for his armpiece and courted her. His name was Fritz Mendel.
3: This relationship was doomed from the start. He had pursued her for her beauty, and because of that, he also was terribly jealous and insecure making him quite a horrible husband.
2: I mean, he had maids picking up the extension whenever she was talking with friends on the phone and had her followed and so forth. He was quite certain that she was uh, cheating on him, which, as far as I understand, she was not. So on the one hand, it was a glamorous life uh, with with castles and uh, beautiful apartments in Vienna and... Uh, But on the other hand, she said one time she felt as if she was in a golden cage because she really was locked away.
3: It was now 1934, and pretty soon the Nazis would take over Austria. Hetty wanted to get out of Austria to pursue her dream of becoming a famous Hollywood actress. Of course, her jealous husband thought it was in bad taste for her to be an actress. So she decided to leave him.
2: The truth is, as I found when I researched the newspapers in New York and in in Vienna, that it was quite a public divorce, as one might imagine. So off she went, first to Paris and then to London, and uh, she had her jewelry to pawn to put together a kind of nest egg. It happened at that particular point in time that a Metro-Golden-Mayer, Louis B. Mayer, the director, was in London and traveling around Europe, buying up the contracts of Jewish artists who understood that it was time to get out of Europe uh, ahead of the Nazi uh, attack on the Jews. He was able to sign, get people to sign contracts at fairly low wages with his studio for up to eight years at a time. So he really was kind of buying job lots of European actors. Hetty wasn't going to be conned into uh, letting that happen to her. So when he made an offer to her after she met him in London, she basically said, no, that's not nearly sufficient, and walked out. That intrigued him. And then she found out what ship he was sailing back to the United States on, booked passage on the same ship, made sure he saw her playing deck tennis with handsome young men on the ship, And by the time they arrived in New York, she had a contract for a pretty good weekly salary uh, for only three years and a commitment to make a certain number of films. So she was launched. She
3: had charmed the director of MGM into hiring her for the price that she wanted. There's no doubt that while her beauty at times was a burden, at other times, she used it as a tool to get what she needed. She got to the States and soon started her new career as an actress.
6: And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, and he's the author of Hedy's Folly, the life and breakthrough inventions of Hedy Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world, and what a story we're hearing so far. And my goodness, we learn right away what a tough negotiator Hedy Lamar is. Not eight years, no. Down to three years, she whittles Louis B. Meyer, and for more money, too. When we come back, this remarkable life, this remarkable American life, Hetty Lamara's life continues here on Our American Stories. And we continue with Our American Stories, and we've been listening to the story of a famous actress from the 1940s, Hedy Lamarr. She had just arrived from Europe and was beginning her acting career in the States. Her first film with MGM was with French-American actor Charles Boyer. We pick up with author Richard Rhodes describing Hedy's breakout into Hollywood.
2: There's a moment in the film, and it was really... Hedy's debut in Hollywood where she steps out of a doorway into into a lovely kind of sunlight and she burst on the world as this extraordinarily beautiful woman and really became a star overnight as a result. So from there she made a few more films with um, Metro-Golden-Mayer. She, like so many people who emigrated to the United States out of that terrible world of, of pre-World War II Europe, was immensely grateful to the country for taking her in. And she became a citizen around, I think, 1942 or 43 after she had spent the requisite time living in the United States.
3: While she loved her new home, the United States, and was grateful to be where she was, her heart still went out to those in Europe. During the Great Blitz of London, when the Germans began bombing London relentlessly, the English moved their children out of London to the countryside, or in large numbers they were shipped to Canada. This was the first time in history that countries were bombing cities and civilian areas. In attempts to save them, the British sent their children
2: away. Hetty one day, reading, following this in the newspapers, was horrified to read that A shipload of children, one of the liners that was being used to transport them had been torpedoed by a German submarine and had sunk with, I think, 82 children were killed in that particular assault. By then she had done something really quite unusual for Hollywood. She didn't drink. She didn't like to go to loud parties, but in order to fill her time between movies, She had to find something, some other way to occupy herself, and she took up inventing. She invented uh, some new kind of stoplight. She invented a chair on a pivot that could be swung into a shower so that someone who couldn't stand up in the shower could take a shower and then swing back out in the chair and dry themselves off. So she was kind of a classic inventor in that she had no technical training particularly. But she had a way of looking at the world that, that asked, "How can you fix this problem, this larger, small problem that exists?" So when she read about the German submarines torpedoing all these English ships with, particularly the ones with children on them, and realized that this was this was Austria and Germany were, was was where she came from, and that it was horrible that 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 her background should somehow be tied in with this terrible business of killing civilians. She decided she would figure out a way to make it more possible than it was at the time to attack and destroy a submarine. Unfortunately, the torpedoes of the day didn't have any real guidance systems on them. You would kind of move as close as you could and aim the torpedo in the general direction of the submarine, or, or rather where the submarine would be when you thought the torpedo would meet the submarine, and then you'd launch, and uh, almost all of the torpedoes missed their targets. So she thought, well, there must be a way to guide a torpedo. And the way she thought of was using radio. A plane or a surface ship with a radio transmitter could transmit a signal to a port- torpedo that was probably, let's say, towing an ant- a wire antenna behind it on the surface to pick up the signal. And the signal could direct the uh, the rudder on the torpedo left or right and guide the torpedo in real time to the submarine and blow up the submarine and therefore pre- prevent the children from being killed.
3: While the United States had not yet entered the war, there was an organization set up where inventors could send their wartime invention ideas to the government.
2: There were something like 300,000 submissions in the course of the Second World War, Uh, unfortunately almost none of which ever got developed into a workable instrument. That's where Hetty turned to find support for her idea of a radio-controlled torpedo. Now, she also had found a collaborator. This was another colorful figure from the 10s and 20s of the century, named George Antile, an American composer of avant-garde music and a uh, concert pianist. They met at a dinner party with some friends and immediately bonded over the fact that they were both very interested in the European war. Hetty broached the idea of of her torpedo uh, Antile was immediately interested. The question became, what kind of radio control system could you use? There were no bio, no, no uh, digital chips in those days. What would actually tell the torpedo how to direct itself? Antile's music had featured a number of compositions, some of them quite notorious, uh, using player pianos. And the player piano is operated by a scroll of paper with holes in it that rolls past uh, a vacuum uh, pipe and where there's a hole, air is sucked in and that triggers the mechanism that uh, makes a key activate on the piano. So Antile imagined that you could probably make a miniature version of one of these scrolls. You could make them out of something more durable than paper, obviously. And that that device with its impact, he actually gave the scroll that they used in their model, 88 holes, rather like the keys on a piano. So they had then Hetty's original idea for a radio controlled torpedo. They wanted one, however, that couldn't be jammed by a radio signal because if somebody was on the, on the enemy side was picking up radio signals and they heard the signal being transmitted from the ship to the torpedo, they could, by producing a sound on the same frequency, basically jam the signal. So, how do you solve that problem? Well, there Hedy got her idea from one of the world's first uh, remote control boxes that had ever been used. She bought a very expensive radio, and radios in those days were the sizes of of refrigerators, she bought a remote control for her living room radio that had was basically like the dial on an old dial phone. But it was a remote control. And she thought, well, something like that would work. And that's where the notion of having multiple frequencies with the signal jumping from frequency to frequency in a more or less random pattern would allow the transmitter to send a signal to the receiver in the torpedo uh, that would jump around all over 88 different frequencies and that no one could follow fast enough with a jamming signal. So the signal could go through, it couldn't be jammed. Here was a really great idea. They put it all together with the help of a, a physicist specialist in electronics who was loaned to them by the National Inventors Council, the organization I mentioned that was there to make these inventions possibly useful to the government. So obviously the National Inventors Council thought this was a worthy project, and and indeed it was. It probably would have worked very well. But when they took it to the Navy, the obvious place to take it once you had worked out the basic ideas. had a blueprint for an invention, which, which by the way, she and George Antile, Hedy and George, then patented. It was patented under Hedy's maiden name, which at that time was Markey. So the patent was assigned to uh, Hedwig Markey and George Antile, and under that name, it was, it was given to them as a protection for their invention. They then donated this patent to the U.S. Navy.
6: And you've been listening to Richard Rhodes, the author of the definitive biography of Hedy Lamarr. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, Hedy Lamar's story, here on Our American Stories.
3: I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now.
6: And we continue with Our American Stories, and we're about to hear the final part of famous Hollywood actress Hedy Lamarr's story. We learned that Hedy was not only beautiful, but she was brilliant as well. Her and her composer friend, George Antile, had created this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology and then handed it over to the Navy. We return to Faith with the rest of the story.
3: After passing it off to the Navy, the Navy stamped it top secret and they didn't hear about it for a long time. Hetty went on to live her life she had two children and ended up getting married a total of six times. The longest marriage lasting about seven years. After a little over a decade in the early 1950s, the idea for the radio controlled torpedo was resurrected. The technology would soon prove itself to be incredibly useful.
2: When someone pulled it off the shelf and tossed it over to one of the many small engineering firms that that the military keeps and maintains to to develop ideas. And the engineer who looked it over thought, wow, this is an interesting idea, not for torpedoes, but for ship to ship communications, because it was something that couldn't be jammed. So the first application of the, the, the Marquis Antile invention came in the early 1950s in the form of a communications system between a plane and what's called a sonoboy. A buoy, of course, is an object that's floating in the ocean. This particular buoy had a uh, sonar system on its underside, underwater, that would project sonar signals down through the water to listen for submarines the inventor who spoke of it later as a very successful invention said this was a perfect way to to make sure we had a, a signal that was secure between the plane that would fly over and pick up the communications from the sonoboy and from the sonoboy itself. But pretty quickly the Navy realized what an efficient way this was to talk from ship to ship. And the ships, for example, that were sent down to Cuba during the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 were all uh, fitted with radio systems that used the patent that had been developed by Hedy Lamar and George Antile. After that, it spread through the military. It became a pretty standard kind of communication systems. In the 1970s, uh, a lot of these World War II and era, that era military secret inventions, were declassified under Jimmy Carter as a way of boosting uh, commercial development of these things. And this invention was picked up and used in some of the early car telephones, which of course preceded the kind of uh, cell phones we have now, but had a similar problem that was not privacy so much as the fact that if you had one car telephone talking to another car telephone on one frequency within a particular given city there would only be about a hundred frequencies that you could use that would mean that no more than a couple hundred cars could be talking to each other at the same time and that obviously was not a commercially viable proposition but if you could use this jumping frequency hopping as eddie called it uh, which came to be called spread spectrum when they changed it slightly, but it was basically the same idea that you move a signal around among different frequencies. With that, thousands of cars could talk to each other at the same time, and no one would really hear more than an occasional maybe almost inaudible blip if if two of the signals crossed each other and, and blotted each other out. Then later on it was used as the basis for what we call Bluetooth today, and still is used in Bluetooth. It didn't become the basis for all of our cell phones, primarily because it was slightly more expensive to manufacture the system than it is for the one that's used in cell phones in the United States. So the manufacturers decided they'd rather go with something that wasn't quite as good actually, but that didn't cost them quite so much to make. There are, I think, cell phone systems elsewhere in the world, however, that do use the the spread-spectrum frequency-hopping system. So, what started out as a a laudable interest in trying to save the lives of English children uh, became then a patent that no one saw any use for, for about 10 years. And then it became a superb communication system for the Navy. Then it spread through the military. Then it was used, I think the GPS system that we all operate on these days is, is another example of, of the Hedy Lamar george Antile spread spectrum system that communicates back and forth between the satellites overhead and our, all of our ground systems. And then eventually Bluetooth, which of course is just universal for short distance communication with all sorts of smart smart equipment that we have around us today. You know, the one piece left in the story is Hetty's lingering feeling as she got older that she had never been given proper credit for this invention. You know, she didn't want the money, she had had, had given the patent to the Navy, but she kind of felt that the very least that the nation could do for this gift she had given it was to, to thank her in some way. But, of course, it had all been lost in the fact that her name on the patent wasn't Eddie Lamar; it was Hedwig Markey.
3: A man in Colorado who was working on digital communications stumbled upon the Markey and patent and wondered who these people were and why their patent for this frequency-hopping spread-spectrum technology was just sitting there.
2: Started looking into it and discovered to his delight that, that Hedwig Markey was Hedy Lamar. He had, like so many men of his age, had been absolutely, had a crush on Hedy when he was a teenager during the Second World War. And the idea that she might have not ever received credit for this really bothered him. All of this culminated in the inventors kind of getting together and agreeing that she should receive an award. And she did Uh, in the early 1990s. uh, It was the Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, which is devoted to recognizing the work of early digital pioneers. She obviously fit that category. She by then had had so many plastic surgeries that she really had ruined her face and she no longer went out in public. But she had a son who, who did and who came to San Francisco and received the award for her. She had made a tape for him, which he played to the, uh, to the, the conference. In it, she said, basically, thank you. I appreciate finally being recognized. But she had said to her son when he called her before this event and told her what was coming up, she she had said in inimical Hollywood style, well, <laughs> it's about time. Then her last dream in life, this was a person who really did accomplish the things she wanted to accomplish. That her last goal in life was to live to the turn of the century, which she did. She died in January of the year 2000. In her little house in Florida, near her, near her, her children, happy woman. Now she, I think, she was never happy in love, but she did some extraordinary things in her life.
6: And great job on that faith, and what a story! And my goodness, it wasn't the money she ever wanted, but getting that recognition by the Pioneer Freedom Foundation in San Francisco, a big deal to her. Hetty Lamar's story here
0: That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured, not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. The
5: 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn.
6: And we return to our American stories. And up next, a story from one of the first museums dedicated to Jewish history and heritage in the United States South, the Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum in Atlanta, Georgia. The museum's archives contain countless oral and written histories of Jews in Georgia and Alabama. And we happened to visit when they were celebrating their twenty fifth anniversary and putting on the Hutzpah Exposition, a celebration of Jewish stories, From the South, here's our own Monty Montgomery with a story.
0: In Atlanta, Georgia, close to downtown and right next to the Center for Puppetry Arts is the Bremen Jewish Heritage Museum, one of the few museums dedicated to Jewish history in the Deep South. Here's Jane Levy, the founding executive director of the Bremen, with more.
8: You know, the... Jewish history in this country, most people think of as the big cities of the North. And so Southern Jewish history for people who aren't Jewish history scholars is something of an oxymoron. But
0: how long have Jewish people been in the South and in Georgia? Here's the Bremen's founding archivist, Sandy Berman, with the answer to that question.
4: Since 1733. Right after Oglethorpe came to settle the colony, Jews were on the next ship, and they were at first not entirely welcome, the charter said, and that was only for Christians. But there was a physician on board, and there was a an illness going around, and they needed help. The physician helped, his name was Dr. Nunez, Samuel Nunez, and he was one of this group of Jews who were coming and he helped the colony, save the colony from all this death and they allowed the Jews to come in and the rest is sort of history.
0: A very rich history, but Atlanta didn't have a museum dedicated to it until the 80s. It was an interesting process to get to that point too. And it started with an exhibition, then an
5: idea.
4: It was 250 years of Jewish life in Georgia, and it was at Emory's Shatton
8: Gallery. In doing that first exhibition, we had volunteers who had ties to all the small towns in Georgia, which is where Jewish history started. And they uncovered all this wonderful stuff from family businesses that you know, existed in the 17, 1800s, photographs of peddlers and wonderful memorabilia.
4: And that exhibition closed, and they had all this stuff that
8: they didn't know what to do with. So I had this idea that there should be a Jewish museum in Atlanta. And I was sitting on the beach in Hilton Head with my yellow legal pad, which I wish we still used. And I wrote a proposal for a Jewish museum. We were working for the Jewish Federation, so the Federation Board passed the proposal in concept, which, as you know, means great idea. No money, if you can figure out If you can figure out how to do it, be my guest. So it actually began when Sandy came and we got a a gift of $2,500 to buy archival boxes and folders. And
4: the volunteer little job turned into let's have a, a do a a fair, let's have a show. It was like, let's make an archive, let's make a museum. And, And they put me in a closet, literally a closet. It was the smallest space and we started to collect. Then we collected The papers of uh, Rabbi Harry Epstein, who was the rabbi of a conservative congregation here in Atlanta for over 50 years, his papers could have gone to any repository in the country, really, but for some reason, he trusted this little closet archive, and that was really the foundation, that and the Federation's records that went all the way back to 1912. So we had these two very, very, strong collections to get us started and then we just started to slowly collect in first Atlanta And then as we grew and we got grants to include the whole state of Georgia because all of these things were being lost. And then we realized no one was collecting in Alabama. And so there was all of these small little communities in, in Alabama where there was a Jewish presence and great stories about the people who made history in Georgia and in Alabama and we just expanded to Alabama then. And if it wasn't for if it wasn't for museums and archives, those stories would be forever lost. And we have so many examples of people and their stories that have been forgotten. And I will just tell you one very quickly. So there was a man by the name of Albert Steiner. There's a building on the campus of Emory University in Atlanta called the Steiner Building. And you would ask, who was Albert Steiner? What is the Steiner Building? And not one person would be able to tell you. No one would be able to tell you what, why they have a building named for Steiner and what it was. He was a brewer and was president of Atlanta Bottling and Ice Company. Well. At the early part of the century, his son died of cancer, his wife died of cancer, and then he got cancer. And when he died, he gave over $600,000, which if you can imagine what that money is in terms of today's money, to Grady Hospital and established the Steiner Cancer Clinic. Cancer clinics across the country were modeled after it, and he was so well loved and well-liked by the people in this company that they named a brew for him. It's called the Steiner Brew, and it was around for a very, very long time, and we have a beer bottle label, we have a bottle of beer, and we have a corkscrew from the Atlanta Ice and Bottling Company, all in memory of Albert Steiner and the philanthropy he did. So that's just one small story, and there are so many of patriotism and perseverance of Jews who conform to the the mores of the South, the culture of the South, and those who perhaps not, to just life and and benevolence and and giving back and the community and... Do you want to tell a story? No. Okay.
8: So there was a man named Isidore Strauss who emigrated from Bohemia wound up in Talbotton, Georgia. He was too old to fight in the Civil War, so he went to England and helped with the blockade of ships on the southern shore of England. Then he and his brother wound up in New York, and they opened a business called L. Strauss Glass and Jewelry. which was part of R.H. Macy's. They eventually bought R.H. Macy, and he, Isidore Strauss, is also remembered as, with his wife, Ida, as the loving couple that went down with the Titanic when it sank. If you saw the movie Titanic, there was one scene where this couple, you know, when, when there is this frenzy of pushing women and children into the lifeboats, Ida, his wife, turned around to him and said, if you can't come, I'm not going. And his house, the family home, is still exists in Talbotton. I'll tell you a, a personal story. When our oldest son was three and wanted chocolate chip cookies, and I said to him, we don't have any more, they're all gone. He said, show me the all gone. And that's, you know, right there is really the purpose of an archive. Some people look at museums as stuffy, old places you hang stuff on the wall, you put stuff in a case, and you walk away, you're done. But um,
4: museums are important because without them, people are forgotten. And without archives, people are forgotten. And it gives voice to those people. It brings them back. It's all about Jewish life and what has transpired in Georgia and Alabama since 1733 until now.
6: And a superb piece of storytelling by Monty Montgomery, and we love visiting museums of all kinds on this show. It's all about storytelling and preserving the past. That's what museums do, and thank God for them. And a special thanks to Sandy Berman and to Jane Levy. Check out their chutzpah exhibition at the museum. It's a truly special one created by the people behind the founding of this wonderful place in Atlanta, Georgia. The story of Jews in the South here
8: work.